But I'm going to start by being mildly geeky for a moment. You see, when I was growing up, I was fascinated by physics. And even now, I really enjoy thinking about how things work. And I guess in my youth, physics provided a suitable outlet for such discovery. And one of the ideas I loved most about physics was how you can use scientific equations to describe the laws of the physical universe. A particular favourite of mine was Einstein's classic E equals mc squared. Energy equals mass multiplied by the speed of light squared. I love the way that from this one law of physics, so many other laws of physics could be derived. But of course, the holy grail of physics is to find what's known as the theory of everything. A theory that fully explains and links together all the physical laws in our universe. A theory from which every other physical law derives. If this theory of everything is discovered, not only would it be a beautiful moment for science, it would also no doubt tell us why why when we drop our jam and toast on the floor, it always falls jam side down. See, physicists are searching for a theory which unifies all scientific laws. That's what Stephen Hawkins and co. are searching for. Well, if we rewind 2,000 years ago and head over to the region of Palestine, the Pharisees were in such a predicament with their religious laws. In total, there were 613 Old Testament commandments, and they loved to argue over which one was the greatest of them all. All were considered important, but some were thought to be more weighty than others. Their scope ranged from do not murder through to making tassels on the four corners of your cloak that you wear. And so the controversy of the day was which commandment was the greatest of them all. Which one commandment was the principal law, the law from which all the other commandments derived? This is the context of our Bible passage from Matthew chapter 22 today. Other useful information that you need to know as we approach it is that the Jewish religious leaders are angry at Jesus for claiming to be the Jewish Messiah. And they're jealous that he's attracting so many followers to his side. And so in our reading last week, we saw two different religious groups trying to trap Jesus in his words, but coming away failing miserably. First student Pharisees were sent in with a tricky question on paying taxes to Caesar and they came back amazed. Then the Sadducees challenged Jesus about the reality of the resurrection and Jesus astonished the onlooking crowd. In fact, in verse 34 of today's passage, it says Jesus silenced the Sadducees, which translates as Jesus muzzles them like he would an animal. So if we've closed our Bibles... Can we open them back up to page 991? And we can continue where we uh, left off last week by looking at the third test Jesus faces. Let me pray as we do that. Father, as we approach your scripture today, we thank you that it always reveals your character. And we pray that as we get to know you more, you would help us to love others with your same love. Amen. Verse 34. It makes it very clear that the Pharisees now know that if they want to discredit Jesus, it's time to send the big guns in. 
we're told the Pharisees get together. You can imagine them huddled together in a committee with their long tasseled cloaks. They're trying to find a suitable contender who's good enough to take Jesus down. One of them, an expert in all 613 Old Testament commandments, is chosen. And I expect that this uh, champion of the Pharisees is something of a cross between Jeremy Paxson with all his interviewing skills and Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, with all his assured and assertive uh, way that he behaves. This champion sets forth a question. The third trap is laid. Teacher, he compliments Jesus ironically, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Today we're very familiar with Jesus' answer, aren't we? But back then, the question was designed to bog Jesus down in the murky controversy of the day. The test for Jesus was that with 613 laws to choose from, whatever answer he gave, it was inevitable that some would disagree. A back and forth argument would ensue between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus would be found wanting in his knowledge of the Jewish law. The Pharisees were attempting to make Jesus look a fool. But surely the Pharisees should have learnt by now this wasn't a wise move. Jesus doesn't hesitate in his reply. He summarises all the Old Testament laws in one theory of everything unifying words. And this word is fundamental to the character of God. This word is what they say makes the world go round. This word is love. Just as the Bible says, God is love. So Jesus summarises the entire catalogue of Old Testament law, focusing in on this one word. Jesus says, love God, love each other. And these are my my two points for today. Firstly, love God. Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Here, heart and soul and mind are not to be taken as three separate categories. Rather, Jesus is saying, Love God with all that you are, with your entire being. Now, of course, for those familiar with Jesus' teachings, the answer he gives doesn't sound much like rocket science. And actually, it shouldn't have been too difficult for the Pharisees to discern. All faithful Jews recited these words from Deuteronomy chapter 6 in their daily prayers. But the problem the Pharisees had was that they'd become so obsessed with the intricacies of obeying God's instruction They'd forgotten their primary calling was to actually love God. The Pharisees had forsaken their first love. They'd come down with Martha syndrome. You remember the story of Mary and Martha? Jesus pays their home a visit, but finds Martha so distracted by all the preparations she feels she needs to make that she neglects to simply sit in Jesus' presence And listen to him. Is this an experience familiar to you? 
Maybe right now you're so busy with work and other distractions that your worship of God has been reduced to just another tick-the-box exercise that you feel you have to achieve. Is this how church feels for you this morning? Maybe you're so busy frantically running around, even doing God's work, that you're out of breath, depriving yourself of the oxygen of God's love. This can leave you feeling more like an obedient drone than a human being with a zest for life. This is one of the dangers that couples face, particularly if children come along. Parents can be so busy ordering diaries to make sure that people get to the right place at the right time, that interaction between family members can start to degenerate into no more than a transactional affair. The reason for being a family being a couple, to spend quality time with each other, gets forgotten about. When we're so consumed with the busyness of life, we face the same danger in our relationship with God. If we're too busy for too long, we easily lose focus, and our relationship with God can become more like a transactional affair. Going through the motions rather than a conversation with someone we really love. You see, if the Pharisees had paused long enough to pay attention to the rhythm of their everyday lives, they'd have seen in their daily prayers that their number one priority was to love God. How is the priority of loving God going for you? Have you recently paused to take stock of the rhythm of your own life. Maybe there were moments of Bible study and prayer you originally set aside to intentionally spend time in God's presence, time you originally dedicated to learn how to love God more. But now, because of other distractions, this time has been squeezed out. Or when these moments do come, you're just going through the motions. This space has become a barren and dry place. If this sounds like you, wouldn't it be good to recapture your first love? Do you remember what it felt like to first be in love? To be nervous and excited at the same time. To more than anything, look forward to the moment when you set eyes on the person you'd fallen in love with. You'd relish the time you got to spend with them. You've reordered the whole of your day just to spend that one moment with them. And you even began to like the things that they did too, no matter how bizarre. Do you know it's possible to feel this way about God? It's possible to love God like this. It's possible to love God in an all-consuming way. This sounds rather intense. Not very British. Perhaps even a little scary for some. But isn't this how being in love makes you feel? Like you're on a roller coaster losing control? 
So where do we go from here? Well, whether you've experienced love like this for God, or if you haven't, now is not the time for feeling guilty or inadequate. Now is the time for slowing down and opening yourself up to the love that God has for you. Only then will you be able to offer love like this back in return. Some of us might have been watching Wimbledon, and you'll know that, especially if you play tennis, that you're only able to generate a certain power if the ball is hit hard to you. When you feel the intensity of God's love, that's when you're able to hit it back with a strong return. The Bible says, it's not that we first loved God, it's that God first loved us and sent his son Jesus to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The love God has for us was personified in Jesus Christ. In the life of Jesus, we see God's theory of everything unifying word. When we start to grasp hold of how God has already done everything necessary in Jesus to forgive all our mess and bring us back into a relationship, an eternal relationship with him, well, the knowledge of his love transforms our whole outlook on life. This kind of sacrificial love sets us free. This kind of love transforms us. It makes us get down on our knees. This kind of love transforms hardened criminals into youth mentors. This kind of love transforms drug addicts into those who now run night shelters. This kind of love transformed the life of Simon and Kath Winscombe, our mission partners, when it taught them to let go of all that was secure in the UK and to go out to Jordan to serve refugees. Come and hear them be interviewed tonight. The kind of love that Jesus showed for us on the cross has the power to transform society. So to my second heading, love each other. After Jesus told the Pharisees that loving God is the first and greatest commandment, before the Pharisees had time to reflect, he immediately adds, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes Leviticus chapter 19, And he does so in a way which expresses a certain equivalence between loving God and loving your neighbour. In other words, when you love your neighbour, it's like loving God. Elsewhere, the Bible says, No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God uh, lives in us and his love is made complete. I find this very helpful so practical. The practical outworking of my love for God who is unseen is to love those who we see who are created in his image. Followers of Jesus are called to love people. This is how we make the invisible God visible to the watching world. Unfortunately, though, some Christians suffer from Jonah syndrome. Do you remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament? Jonah was one of Israel's prophets. 
God told him to go to Nineveh and warn the people there that that their wickedness has come before God. And if they didn't change their ways, destruction would soon come upon them. Jonah was understandably scared of the violent Ninevites. And he jumped on a ship going the opposite way to Tarshish. During his journey, a violent storm arose, which threatened to break up the ship. Jonah confessed that the storm was his fault because he was fleeing from God. And he told his fellow shipmates to throw him overboard in order to calm the waves. God then provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and stuck in this darkest place for three days and three nights. Jonah cried out to the Lord for help. Jonah is spat out onto the dry land once again. God issues his call. This time Jonah obeys God and goes to preach to the Ninevites. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Surprisingly, the Ninevites repent. God relents from sending destruction. Great news for all concerned, you would think. But not for Jonah, apparently. Jonah gets very angry with God for saving Nineveh because his reputation as a prophet of Israel has been undermined. Jonah loved himself more than the people God wanted to save. The story of Jonah is a warning to us all. It's all very well obeying God's instructions, but if we have no love for those he's asking us to serve, then it's as if we don't love God at all. The irony in the book of Jonah is that it's when he's disobedient and flees to Tarshish that he's willing to sacrifice his life in order to save the sailors. Yet when he obeys God's command to go to Nineveh, he's most misaligned with God's heart. Jonah needs to learn how to love others like God loves them. Maybe some of us at times suffer from Jonah syndrome. If we are to avoid it, we must learn to love those around us as much as we love and take care of ourselves. So who has God placed near you? The danger we face is making loving our neighbour too much of an abstract concept, where we never really communicate God's love to those in our immediate vicinity. We can, should and do support causes far away. But we need to ask, how much does this involve a real investment of our hearts or put our reputation of followers of Jesus on the line? If we are to fully demonstrate God's love and compassion, we need to be asking, who is my lonely neighbour next door in need of a friend? How can I love people I meet in the parade? People who look scary and intimidating to me. People who are 30 years younger or older than me. Right now, how can I love those who voted differently to me? What opportunities do you have to love people locally? Maybe next week at the Claygate Flower Show. One friend of mine who worships here works in the city, and he was telling me about a process called transference, 
where the boss at the top of his organisation unrealistically piles on the pressure using his power and authority to intimidate the subordinates beneath him, to do more work. Fear and anxiety passes down the chain of command to the point where everybody ends up stressed and concerned for their job. But because God's love is working through my friend, he sees an opportunity to break this chain. Because my friend is so assured of God's love for him in his own life, he has no reason to fear those above him. So he's not going to poison those downstream. He's going to love and encourage them with positive words instead. If you're in a position of power and authority, how do you make those downstream from you feel? Is your behaviour more likely to make them go home and kick the cat rather than love God? Let's be clear. Jesus said, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. To conclude, if we, as Christians, really made it our mission to love the lowly, can you imagine how much it would transform society? Can you imagine what it would be like if we, who heard the theory of God's love every Sunday, really took it to heart? If we got fired up in the power of the Holy Spirit... And made sharing the love of Jesus a very practical thing. Could we go out of here today loving God and loving each other? Lord, I pray that that would be the case.